everyone, I'm Cheryl McNeil Fisher. Dr. Kathy King and I want you to know you are important to us. We are thrilled that you're here with us today for another episode of Writing Works Wonders. Welcome to Writing Works Wonders. We're so pleased you're with us for fabulous episode 113 because it includes our guest, number one New York Times bestselling author, Sandra Brown. Yes, you know her work from many different venues, and she's here with us today to share time with us and answer questions. Not an episode to be missed. We're so glad you tuned in for today's show. I'm Kathy King, and I'm so pleased to introduce you to my fabulous co-host, Cheryl McNeil Fisher. I have a fabulous co-host, too. She's the master of the universe. And if you want to know why I call her that, check out Web Design for Authors. I've been step-by-step, not only how you can make your website, but how you can maintain it, too. Sandra is the author of, are you ready for this, 75 New York Times best-selling books. 50 of those are on NLS Bard. These include Blind Tiger, Trick is Thieves, and Mean Streak. Writing professionally since 1981, Brown has published over 75 novels and has upwards of 80 million copies of her books in print worldwide. Her work has been translated into 34 languages. Her work has also appeared in episodes on TV's Murder by the Book series in 2008. She appeared in 2010 Discovery series, Hardcover Mysteries. Many of her other works have also been made for TV, including French Silk, Smokescreen, and... Rocket. Her website is sandrabrown.net, where you can find all that information. Hi, Sandra. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you very much. I was <laughs> honored to be invited, and, and I appreciate everyone who is tuning in to listen and will listen later to the podcast. Thank you to all of you for the invitation, very gracious invitation that you sent me. I was thrilled to accept. Oh, thank you. We appreciate you. I want to tell everyone, please look at Sandra's website. There's so much information there. Just amazing. Really well put together information on the books, information thank for you. book clubs. It's really something. You talked about how normally you could put together your synopsis pretty quickly, you say, in a nutshell, but that out of nowhere was a little more challenging for you. Well, out of nowhere begins with a subject I would rather have avoided, and that is a mass shooting. So when I began thinking about the book, it wasn't so much the incident, horrendous incident itself. It was about the recovery, the people who survived it virtually unscathed and yet lost tremendously. And I wanted the book not to be about so much the shooting, but how one picks, picks up the pieces 
of their lives and go on when pieces of their lives are missing, are altered in such a way that it is life-changing. So I hope that everyone who reads the novel will read the author's note in the beginning because my my publisher asked me to do it for the book club uh, reader's guide. And, And so I wrote this essay and they were highly complimentary of it and said it's so heartfelt. It's it's so personally from you to the reader that we would like to print it as a forward in the front of the book. And so, of course, I gave my permission. And, and as many people have remarked on that almost as they have the novel itself, because it sets it up as being what I hoped it would be. And that is a life affirming, hope affirming theme throughout the book. It's not about, I open it up by saying, it's not a book about death. It's about a book about survival. And then it, it you know, the in the last sentence, I'm just saying that the people who have to carry on their lives after experiencing an event like that, even tangentially, I consider casualties as well, because I don't know how anyone really gets up the next morning and carries on their life as though a trauma like that had not occurred. It would be impossible, I think. So my story is more about two two very different people who were strangers to each other, who experienced this event and both lost hugely in different ways and how they independently and together are trying to go through the recovery process. Thank you. And that leads me into the next question. And you say, did I want to write a a story about a mass shooting? And no. And I also wanted it known. And and I I really tried to clarify this in the Mm -hmm. foreword that I don't know how someone does this. I haven't had that experience. And so in a way, uh, throughout the writing of the book, I felt rather presumptuous, like I don't know how someone does this. And I wanted people to be aware that all of this was my, I was kind of projecting uh, the way that I would feel, the way I would react, um, how I would want to get justice. But even though justice is achieved uh, in out of nowhere, it's still there the rest of your life. You know, I don't know that you can ever say, okay, I got justice. It's over now. It would never be over for me. And I don't think it would be over for anyone. And so I wanted the reader to realize that this was a work of fiction and that I was not writing it from a presumption that, oh, I got this figured out. I, I think my characters and I, as we went along, were, were still trying to figure out how we're going to cope with this and the impact it's going to have on the rest of our lives. It must have been exhausting sometimes just getting it into was. the head of those characters and 
going to I would even cry. Uh, I there were days yeah. when I was at the keyboard writing particular scenes and would be so emotionally moved, you know, by yeah. what they were going through. And then the other aspect of the book, because it does have my name on the cover, <laughs> and Sandra <laughs> Brown's books are known to contain certain elements, it also had to be not only a very emotional exploration uh, into the heart and minds of, and psychology of these two people, but also a suspense novel. And mm -hmm. so my challenge as a writer was, how do I combine this and make it um, a book with some entertainment value? Because I didn't want it to get ever maudlin. Uh, as I said, I wanted it to be life affirming and hope confirming. And so it was it was really a, a challenge. And I talked to my editor about it long and hard. I said, you know, can I really do this? And he was like, yeah, I sent him the first 150 or 200 pages. And and he said, well, I, I think you you've nailed it. You know, we see mm -hmm. their emotional struggle, but I also can't wait to see what happens, you know, with mm -hmm. this uh, shooter. I go into the shooter's head, I think like five times from a first person point of view, and you see the derangement, you know, and you see the arrogant kind of narcissistic reason why in the in the shooter's mind, the action was was justified. So I, it, but that kind of added that element of suspense that I needed that Calder and L, my two main characters still had a clear and present danger, you know, kind of breathing down their neck mm -hmm. that they were unaware of. It had to be, I had to combine those two as artfully as I possibly could. And that you are great at. <laughs> well, and with that, you. I'm going to turn yeah, you're welcome. I'm going to turn it over to Kathy. Hi, Sandra. When you begin these wonderful books of yours, they have so many different dimensions to them. You have these many characters. You have these plot lines. You have these different storylines for your characters. Do you start with an outline and some character background up front? Do you keep track of it while you're developing your manuscript? What is your process in this regard? Well, it's kind of uh, it's kind of half half of both of those things, Kathy, because if you ask any writer, they're going to give you a different way in which they go about, you know, writing the book. But first of all, I feel like the stories always find me. I, I'm not er sure I ever create anything so much as I find the story or it comes to me and the characters start emerging my subconscious and and say, I've got a story that you need to tell. Once I I kind of get a vague idea of what I want to do, it, my characters get in terrible trouble. Uh, I call it the catalytic event. Of course, in this book, it was very obvious. It was the, it was the shooting. And so automatically they're in terrible trouble. And once I put them in place, however, they kind of take over the story. They're smarter than I am. And of course, I know it It all sounds, it sounds kind of schizophrenic, like, but I really do have these people living in my head. And so much of the time, they'll come up with fabulous lines of dialogue. 
that that I hear in my head, but I don't think it, it wasn't me sitting down and thinking about what's he going to say at this point in time. I heard Calder say in dialogue with L. She, he says, I have a problem with failure. I have an issue with failure. And she said, I find that very hard to believe because he's a very successful businessman. You know, he's very cocky, very arrogant, very self-confident, glib, all of these things prior to the shooting. And this kind of, you know, cuts him off at the knees. He's having to deal with a completely different landscape and he says, I have this issue with failure. And she says, I find that hard to believe. When have you ever failed? And he said, never until it counted. I heard that dialogue exchange in my head and I thought that is Calder's character. That's what he's dealing with. This is the first time in his life that he really has failed at something and it was a doozy. So I thought, thank you for filling me in on that, Calder, because then at the start of the book, I knew exactly how his character was going to be developed. So I kind of let them take over at some point, and I open up scenes not knowing who's going to show up. I didn't really know Compton and Perkins until they walked into Calder's hospital room and said, we need to talk to you. They're the two that detectives who are investigating the shooting and then characters along the way I knew there was going to be a girlfriend I didn't exactly know Shauna's character I knew there was going to be uh Elle's close friend she couldn't she couldn't operate in a vacuum in this book she had to have backing and so I created Linda Glenda she she walked into the scene and kind of took over she was a personality that I didn't necessarily see coming so sometimes I have a, I know where I'm going. It's a long answer to your question, Kathy, I'm sorry, but it's like I set them into place. I know where I'm going with this story. For instance, I knew all along what the twist was going to be at the end. So I know where I'm going, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. And so I don't sit down and do an outline. I don't sit down and do a character sketch. I'd rather us get to know each other as the story goes along. And, and those relationships will then kind of evolve. They reveal aspects of themselves to me as I'm writing the story. That's terrific. That It sounds to me like true storytelling, Sandra. You know, oh, well. you're, you're, you. you're letting that story roll out of you, you know? Well, um, I look at it kind of as, a, you know, like a, a sculptor might look at a piece of marble and say, there's something in there. It's up to me to excavate it. And that's kind of the mm -hmm. way I feel about the story. There's a story there. It's up to me to kind of pull it out. And it's not easy. <laughs> we'll qualify by saying this is not an easy process. In fact, out of I've written 85 books, as you mentioned, uh, or Cheryl mentioned it, it, I've had 75 of them become New York Times bestsellers, but I've written 85. And yet right now I'm trying to plot number 86 and it's as hard as it ever has been, if not harder. 
So it's a love-hate relationship. I've got the best job in the world. I love telling the stories. I get to lie for my living <laughs> um, and, and try to fool people, you know, for mm-hmm. a living by the same time. It, it, it is, um, it is a hard job. It, it's draining emotionally, physically, every other way I can think of. I really enjoyed several of your books that I was able to read and the characters are vivid. The context is vivid. You seem to really investigate and get to know the context that you're working in. I imagine that takes some different types of research based on the the book that you're writing and the setting that it's in. I has has this particular book, this most recent one, been more researched than others? I can't say so much that it has only in regards to how people suffer post-traumatic stress, which is exactly what this was. It wasn't warfare, but it was mortal danger, and some of them lost people very dear to them. I don't want to give too much away, but so I did even more research, which I had done before on post-traumatic stress. And, you know, Calder admits to beginning to drink too much. And he has these mood shifts that his girlfriend, Shauna, cannot understand, becomes impatient with, and he becomes impatient with her impatience. It's going to take me a minute, Shauna, you know, he says, it's going to take more than, uh, you know, I can't just snap out of this. And so I did a lot of research into that and how families cope with someone, Mm -hmm. you know, in their, in their realm who is suffering that. But there have been many other books where I had to learn how to fly and crash an airplane, (laughs) a small Cessna (laughs) airplane. And so that's, I was hours and hours and hours on the telephone and sending emails back and forth to a private pilot friend of mine who's very knowledgeable, been flying forever. He was an Air Force pilot, flew with him. He, I, would, I would write the scene as I wanted to write it as a storyteller and then say, okay, how can this happen? What buttons would he push? What levers would he have to, you know, shift or something like that? So there have been a lot of books where I, I've had to deal with, with topics I really didn't know anything about and would have to dig deep in order to make it authentic and as real as possible. But my viewpoint on research is that it should be invisible, that I need to know it. Uh, my reader will realize that I know it, but I get annoyed with an author when they kind of depart from the story and they fill up pages with technology or something like that. And I think you're showing off. You're just showing up, you know, how smart you are. And to me, anything that draws the reader out of the story should not be there. So I try to reveal aspects of whatever subject matter it is in dialogue between the characters or in some other way, or I impart the information a little bit at a time so that the reader doesn't become bogged down in the nonfiction part of it. 
I like to weave it into the story. Absolutely. And I think that's a great example about the airplane and knowing which buttons that the pilot would push and try to push and how they would try to avert the crash, etc. A great example for readers and writers to hear on our call, because they might not be aware of the amount of work that goes into writing those scenes to be able to have that authentic information. Thank you for sharing that example. That's a really, really good one, Sandra. Well, thank you. One of the things that you provide with many of your books is a reader's guide. And we're just wondering, is that something that you develop or the publisher develops or you have a team develop? And uh, Uh, where did that idea come from? Well, actually, uh, it was about four or five books ago we really started pushing them for book clubs because usually book clubs pick more literary books. They, they don't always pick pop fiction, I guess is what you would call Mm -hmm. mine. I wish they popped more easily than they do. I don't think of them as pop fiction, but book clubs a, a lot deal with a lot more literary books then there are those book clubs that really like to have uh, a good time, not get so deep to ha- have books that they can laugh or cry over, you know, without it uh, being just so deep. But on the other hand, why did you enjoy this book and what did you take away from it? So I did have a team at my publishing house who said, let us come up with some questions And we want to do a reader's guide and then really reach out to book clubs. I said, that's a fantastic idea. And of course, I had friends who were members of book clubs and they would, you know, dutifully pick, you know, I'd be a selection like once a year or something. But this was going to be on a more, you know, uh, right out there in the marketplace. And so they came up with these great thought-provoking questions, and I was so impressed. And there were a few changes I made or a few suggestions I made, maybe an aspect of it that hadn't been covered in their questions. So they, each year they come up with 10 or 12 or 15, however many it is, questions that I find very thought-provoking that I didn't even realize were aspects of the book that people would want to know more about. So we kind of work together on it then. They send them to me. I make some modifications or suggestions. And then before they print them in the reader's guide or make the reader's guide available online, they consult me one more time. And so I do have a last chance to change anything or delete a question or add a question if I so choose. That's great to hear that a team is working together with you on that. Over to you, Cheryl. Thanks, Kathy. And I just want to let everyone know, though, that that reader's guide is up on Sandra's website. And I, I too, found them very thought provoking. I I just really uh, was wow. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Now, I know everybody's sitting on the edge of their seat. But I want to just touch one more thing, and you have started a couple of nonprofits. Would you share with us one or two of you something that's so dear to your heart that you'd like us to know about? Well, my parents, both deceased, 
were good friends with a minister who began many years ago a boarding school uh, academy for uh, at-risk children. And uh, my mother was an educator. She taught for years, she taught special education, and then she what became uh, in more an administrative role, but, but children and, and education were so dear to her heart. And so they supported, it, it's called Happy Hill Farm, and it's a community southwest of me, about 50 miles. After her demise, I thought, what could I do that would really honor her? And so I established a scholarship at Happy Hill Farm and contribute to it each year. And it's in her name. Her picture, you know, hangs in the hallway at the academy. The students live there, but and they go to school, of course. But they also, it is a it is an active farm and they have various aspects of, of farming. They have an orchard, they grow their own peaches, they uh, and each year they send out buckets of peaches to benefactors, donors like me, which are fabulous. They have a bakery in which the students bake their own, you know, goods and they they sell them and they send them out as, as gifts. So it's a lovely, wonderful endeavor. The gentleman who started it is now deceased, but his his children and grandchildren have taken it over. So that's one thing that's very dear to me. I worked for a long time with Barbara Bush on her literacy, Barbara Book Foundation, you know, purported literacy in adults and children and provided books for school libraries and so forth. And I did a lot of programs with and for her and the rest of her family because they're all very devoted to that. Laura, for instance, school librarian, you know, is, is, is very into that. And then the other thing, one thing I'm very proud of, I attended Texas Christian University. I I, I did not graduate, but years later, uh, it's been 15 years ago, they gave me an honorary doctorate of humane letters, and I established a scholarship there for creative writing students and students who want to pursue a career in English or creative writing, especially fiction writing. And so those are programs that I'm, I'm proud to be a part of, and other people do a lot of work toward them, but I'm glad to be, you know, able to be a benefactor and, and kind of look over everybody's shoulder and, and seeing the <laughs> results. And it yeah. and it's uh, it's really very rewarding. Thank you. Thank you. We have a lot of people here and we'll try to get in as many as we can. So Chanel, I'm gonna leave it up to you. Okay. First up we have Stephen, then Lucy. Hi Sandra, congratulations on your success. Um I just want to quickly I'm a fourth time self published um, author, my fourth book coming out. I heard you at the beginning, you said you had a lot of lucky breaks and I love your writing process. And I just can't imagine, especially for your first book that you sat there and say, said, this is going to be a bestseller. How, how does that work? I mean, I know there's no formula, but um, what was your journey like getting into that? So, right. so could you just like summarize how it worked for you? 
Well, of course, this goes back to a long time ago. The climate and the landscape of publishing has changed just absolutely so dramatically, Stephen, that what I would have to tell you would be almost obsolete. I still adhere to um, the traditional publishing route, which is to go through a publisher. Now, how that happened for me, I knew I wanted to write. Uh, I've been challenged to write. I I wrote some manuscripts. I was invited to go to a writer's conference, the University of Houston. And I went, it was this very scary venture because it had agents and editors there that, you know, were from New York. And it just sounded so intimidating. But I went and there I met a lot of people. One was a bookstore owner, uh, a small East Texas town who volunteered to read a manuscript of mine when I got one that I liked. I sent it to her a few months later and said, you may not remember meeting me. And she said, well, of course I do. And she agreed to read it. And she called me a few days later and she said, I know an editor who's starting a line of romances and this is exactly what she's looking for. So I'm going to, you send it to her and I'm going to call her and tell her to look for it. So uh, this story goes on and on, but the editor did call me about a week later and say, I want to read your book. Have you written anything else? Well, of course, I was still trying to pick myself up off the ground for her having said she wanted to buy my book. But then I did, I had another one that I had finished and I said, yes. And so she called me 13 days later and bought the second one. This was, as I was referring to earlier, one of the very, very, very lucky breaks because I was writing for a market that was very hot at the time. The romance market was burgeoning in the United States. Harlequin, which had kind of had the monopoly for a long time, had discovered a whole continent of American writers when most of their writers were, well, all of their writers to that point were British or Canadian. That was my start. And I wrote several books before I even retained an agent. At that point in time, my agent did, she did not make any money until I made money. And uh, nowadays, I believe that in order to even get an agent to read your book, it's a nominal fee. It'd be like $250 or something like that. But at that point in time, uh, agents were more risk taking, you know, they they would read a manuscript and and then if they sold it, they would get, you know, their percentage. So as I say, the the climate and the landscape in publishing has changed dramatically. Never self-published since the onset of my career. Once I kind of built up a name, then I had publishers coming to me and saying, uh, we'd love to have you. And I would make a business decision as to whether to you know, go with them or to stick with the, the publishing house I had. That's kind of my experience. I can't speak to every... Uh, uh, to any of my colleagues, I know that most kind of went with the traditional route because, first of all, there were there was self publishing in print, but the ebook, you know, hadn't even been thought of, and so it was that opened up a whole new avenue for new writers, you know, to put their their books online. 
So I wish you the best of luck with it, but it is kind of still a journey. It's still kind of difficult uh, nowadays to get an agent, but it can be done. Happens all the time. So I just wish you the best of luck. And I hope that something I've said has has helped you a little bit. Thank you. Next up, we have Lucy, then Jeanette. Hi, Sandra. Thank you so much Hi, for Lucy. being with us. Hi. Um, I, I love your books. And matter of fact, I just finished Shadows of Yesterday this morning. <laughs> oh, my goodness, that's a golden oldie. <laughs> I know. Well, I want to talk about another one that is a golden oldie uh, that I particularly liked. And I don't know why, but I just thought it was very cleverly written. Uh, Breath of Scandal. <laughs> yeah. Was was that book based on any like experience that someone may have had or show that you watched or anything? Or did you just like think of it? Because I I just thought it was really cool the way Thank <laughs> the way she Thank yeah. you. It was not based on anything, anyone that I knew personally. But um, at that point in time, it was kind of a, an opening thing. Now, now, since the Me Too movement and everything, acquaintance rate has become or talked about attention paid. Whom do you believe? I had read a news story about a woman to whom that had happened, you know, when she was in high school and she kept quiet about it forever. I thought, well, that's awful to have happened to someone and for her to have carried that burden for all these years, you know, without sharing it. And I thought, what would happen as novelists play the what if game? What if that had happened? And then years later, when she was better able to do it, to to get revenge, you know, uh, her own brand of revenge on the on the three men. And so that's where the story idea came from. It was actually uh, something I had, you know, read about or seen on television or something. And this woman had finally come forward and, and named these people that had inflicted themselves on her. And so I felt like it was very provocative. And at that time, as I say, this is going back a long time ago, and nobody really heard of the Me Too movement. <laughs> you know, it was it was a long time coming after that, but it it provoked a lot of fan mail at the time. And I had women writing me and saying, you know, I had a similar circumstance. I wish I'd had the bravery that your character did. Thank you. Next up is Jeanette. Hello, Sandra. I am thrilled to be able to ask you a question. And I oh, well, just acquired out of nowhere. And I will be starting it as soon as I leave this call. My question is about language. I'm fascinated by the descriptive language in your books. So my question to you is, when you get stuck, when you can't find the words that describe in the manner that you want to, how do you work through that? I usually, well, thank you, first of all, for the compliment. 
I usually will put a word in and either underline it or put an asterisk by it or, or some other way distinguish it so that I know it's not the right word. And then it will be, be later in the day or it could be the next day or it could be the next time I'm working on that passage and I will suddenly have the new word. I will have the right word. Or sometimes I will go to, you know, a very comprehensive thesaurus on my computer and and look through all of the, you know, so many words have so many nuances. Um, and I'll be looking, I'll know what I want to say, but I'm looking for just the right nuance to convey how that word is used in that particular context. And so I go about it different ways. And then sometimes it can be, even when I get the copy edited manuscript for my review or when I get my page proofs and I'll be reading it and this, the word will come to me. So that's, I, I do have to work through it, but I, I'm glad it's effective for you, <laughs> at least, that that sometimes the, the and, and I also believe I'm kind of Hemingway-esque in this way, I think, uh, which is different from the way I was when I was writing romances with which call for, you know, a much more flowery language. But I think uh, it it aggravates me, just like I was talking about the research. It aggravates me when I think the writer is trying to impress me with the writing being lyrical than just telling the story. And, and really, you know, I think Hemingway spent his life trying to write the perfect sentence. And basically it's subject and verb. And if the verb is powerful, you really don't need a lot of embellishment. If it's exactly the right verb, then the reader is going to know what you're talking about. So sometimes verbs are are the hardest words to come by. Thank you. Next, we have Jeannie. Uh, so my question is, and, and I have read a little bit of you, probably not as much as some other people, and I've enjoyed what I've read so far. But if someone had never read any Sandra Brown, what is the first book that you would recommend that they read that would really get them hooked? Oh, that's interesting. A fan favorite seems to be Envy. It It's a recurring favorite when, when people are listing them. It's a book within a book. The title came to me the instant the, the plot did or the premise did. I wanted to do a book about two individuals who pursued the same career. One was successful and one was not as successful. And I thought, are they going to be dentists or astronauts or, you know, it was like, what in the world could I, what do I know about? And I thought, well, I know a lot about writers. And so I thought that's, that's even better because it's an artistic pursuit. And, and so that's what, that's what I set out to write. And I thought one is just so envious of the other's success. And I thought, ah, there's my title, Envy. And titles don't typically come that easily. So uh, I set out to write the book and it really is a book within a book. A lot of people find that 
really interesting how I moved the stories. They coincided, and I, but I went kind of back and, and forth. That seemed to be a book that really captures people's imagination. I know there's a, a woman who, by the way, is partially blind, and she listens to books on audio because it's difficult for her to read. And she has listened to Envy over 100 times. I know that. So that's a huge compliment. And then my first New York Times bestseller, which also seems to be a very popular book that people typically reread, is called Mirror Image. So those two pop up quite a bit. And then, of course, now I think Out of Nowhere will be because it was different. It was different. And a book called Rainwater that I wrote just as an extra book uh, between suspense novels. And it was set in the Depression. So it was kind of a historical, it's a short book, but it's called Rainwater. So those are the ones that immediately come to mind, Jeannie. Thank you. Next, we have Carol Mackey. Thank you. What a delight to have you on. Thank uh, you. Sandra. I just finished reading um, Smokescreen and enjoyed it, and I've read many of your other books. Um, Thank you. But my question is about, and you and people will laugh on this call because I always ask this of authors. I'm sorry. Is what's your pro- what is your process, your writing process? Um, do you write every day for at six o'clock or in the morning? You know, what is that process and does it vary or do you have a strict kind of way of doing it or um, does it fluctuate a little bit? I'm always interested. I happen to write poetry, so it's very different, but I'm very interested in, in how you do it. And you've done so Well, many. it's. It's changed over the years a little bit because when when I started writing, uh, I had toddlers, <laughs> I had two toddlers uh, at home who were demanding my attention. And so I had to use a lot of bribery. If you let mommy work uh, for till the long hand gets on the 12 and the little hand gets on the four, then, you know, we'll go swimming or go get an ice cream cone or whatever it was. Um, Also, I bribed them by putting their name on every book because I was writing the romances and I chose for my first pseudonym, Rachel Ryan. So it was a, it was like a, a new world when they both got into preschool every day, because then I had several hours a day um, that I could drop them off and then go home and write like a frenzy. And then at, you know, three o'clock when they got out, I was the mom. I, you know, drove carpool to ballet and soccer and choir and brownies and you know everything else I I had that role too which I loved by the way but over the one so for the first the next 12 or 15 years I wrote according according to the school day and would drop them off in the morning pick them up in the afternoon and in between there is when I wrote and I guess I I still kind of skip uh, stick to that schedule. I'm not an early riser. I'm a, ter- I, I'm a night person and I sleep late. I, um, I, I have an office now outside the house. This the one you're seeing me, for those of you who can uh, see me, I'm in my office at home. 
I get up, go to work, a separate office where I have two full-time employees, and I spend the first hour or so doing like social media or business. There's a lot of business involved now beyond writing the books. There's publication and promotion and all of that that I oversee. And then if I get in four and a half, five hours, six hours, maybe of, of writing time each day, that's a really good day. And then there are several, depending on where I am in the book, I go away. I just shut down my life and I go to a place in South Carolina that I've had for 30 years. And I just, I don't do anything but write. I don't dress. (laughs) I can't wear my pajamas all day. I have no appointments. Uh, I have very limited social life there, and it's limited to maybe going out to dinner. I don't do anything during the daytime except write. So some of those days extend to eight or 10 hours of writing when I'm just absolutely exhausted and I can't do it anymore. So, and that's usually crunch time. My books are always due in April. My deadline is April So as soon as my son's birthday is January 2nd, as soon as we celebrate his birthday, I'm I'm gone and I I stay pretty much for the next three months, although I do come back and forth some, but I stay there a lot in solitude and and just write. So that's my that's my process. And in terms of how many drafts I do, I'm a big rewriter. So I do the entire first draft just to get the story out because I'm afraid it's going to leave me before I get it committed. And then I do three other drafts and I rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. I may work on one scene for a week, just squeezing all I can out of it. So I'm, I'm big on rewriting. I, 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 really admire my colleagues who say, oh no, by the time I finish the draft, I'm pretty much done and Mm -hmm. it's ready to go. And I'm not like that. Sandra, is there any kind of closing words you'd like to leave with everyone today? Thank you for the honor of uh, talking to you today. I really appreciate it. I was excited about this and you've all been so gracious and so lovely. And I'm happy to have been able to address some of my readers. I appreciate your comments very much. And I hope that some of you who have not tried a Sandra Brown will certainly try it and become a Sandra Brown reader. That would mean a lot to me. But thank you for the opportunity to chat with you today. We are so happy that you have accepted that you're here. So many people today actually get to hear your voice and some were fortunate enough to say hello. Thank you, Sandra Brown. And thank you, everyone, for making this an amazing episode. Visit writingworkswonders.com for these show notes, previous episodes, and many resources. Above all else, we want you to be encouraged, inspired, and enjoy the wonders of writing. We look forward to being with you next time. Here are a few excerpts from the after party. Wow. 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 I just thought that was, that was awesome. You know, I just, I just went to the, uh, to my um, library online on the um on the you know online and ordered some books one of the waits for her out of nowhere 12 weeks 
You know, it's wow. never, I've yeah. never had yeah. a book that I had to wait 12 weeks for. She is just wow. so popular and she's got yeah. some in my library. She's got some on audio and she's got some, you know, some books. So I'm very mm. excited. I haven't read her. I'm, I'm not a good reader. I never grew up being a good reader. So you writing works wonders helps me to encourages me and oh, helps me figure out what I would read. Cause I'm, I'm not into blood and gore. And I really liked how her out of nowhere didn't focus on any of that. You know, mm-hmm. I like her focus mm-hmm. where she goes mm-hmm. with things and love the question about processing. I, I listen to <laughs> a just to find that out, just to th- thank you. <laughs> Life giving sources by Marlene Massad. Sunlight warms by day, shining heat and light. Its rays reach across to help planet Earth. Air feels light and free, filtering our breath. Unseen, comfort felt, balancing fresh life. Moonlight, evening pale, does not light the path. No warmth does it send as it guards the night. Faith flows like the wind, subtle, unseen trust. Stepping to unknown, learning as it grows. Cornerstone of life, light of all the world, spirit, wind, foretells if we seek the sun. Not all views the same, differences abound. Existence is here. Will the sun burn out? The end. That was wonderful. Thanks, Marlene. Thank you. You you said free form, so I... Thank you. Yeah, sure. Concentrate on not rhyming. (laughs) There you go. Well, you could not. You could have done. You could have rhymed. It was just whatever you wanted to do. Yeah. Thank you. So next we have Agnes and then Jeanette. Okay. Hi, Agnes. Hi. Hi, I'm Agnes from Colorado. And I just wanted to say that I enjoy the program. I um, don't often get a chance to to join your show live. due to a scheduling conflict, but Mm -hmm. I was glad to be able to come today. I haven't read any Sandra Brown books in many years, but it was interesting to hear, you know, how she writes, her process, Mm -hmm. because I'm always interested in hearing about how people, you know, write or do different things. Mm -hmm. And could somebody please give me her website again? It's sandrabrown.net. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you much. And keep up the great job you are doing. Thank you. And just for FYI, Tracy Peterson will be with us in November. Uh, She's got 70 something books on Bard. So (laughs) I just thought maybe you knew who she was. No, Tracy Peterson. Tracy Tracy with an I-E. Yeah, Tracy. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that you do put all this in podcast, you know, in case we need to go back or want to go back and, and, um, 
and get them. But as I said, uh, keep up, you know, the great work you're doing. And I'm sure that your time with people about how to write and critiques and mm. all probably helps a lot of people a lot. So y'all have a good weekend. You too. You too. Thank you so much, Thanks, Agnes. Agnes. Thank you. And next is Jeanette. Hi, Jeanette. So I don't often get on this call um, just because my schedule is usually a bit frenetic. But today, um, uh, the weather blew me away and wouldn't let me do what I needed to do. So mm -hmm. I was thrilled. I was completely fascinated by her. But now, if you could please explain to me these prompts. Like oh, the prompts? We yeah. always have, yeah, we give out prompts that we like 100 words or less using the words. Um, like uh, today was coffee, tea, coffee, tea, coffee or tea and mystery. So, so this can, is for next week? Next time we're together. Yeah. Okay. And you can, we have a whole, we have a bunch of them up on our website and it's very easy to get to when you go to www.writingworkswonders.com up in the upper right hand corner, it'll say prompts. And as you go down, you can easily uh, use any of those prompts. You can add your comments and post them online or not so that's what we do yeah and this you can may share encourage them me to write i i yeah. i don't write easily so maybe this will yeah you just some. like a hundred words or less you know to write that and the one this week was air and wind i believe i had yeah so you know and yeah that's, that's a, what it helps us mm -hmm. and for a screenwriter user I think there was a direct link to prompts. I I don't mm -hmm. think we yeah. find it on the top yeah. right, but I think it's if you just yeah. do look by as you scroll go down, down the page a little yeah. bit, you should find yeah. it. So if there's and a link, if you're a JAWS user, if you do Shift F7, yeah, it'll show F7. all the. I mean, insert. Yeah. God, I'm looking at the insert key and saying <laughs> That's Shift. That's okay. That's uh, okay. <laughs> You know, you should be able to find them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we have a wonderful webmaster, Miss Kathy. So, you know, everything is just fabulous because she's the master of the universe. The other fun thing about the writing prompt page, Jeanette, is that you can see what other people have done. And yeah. that encourages you. A lot of them are only 50 words. You can yeah. answer even some of the old ones. So that's where I'm going first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Thank we you. We do rhymes, all kinds of stuff. Have fun. Thank you for joining us today on Writing Works Wonders. Kathy and I are thrilled to spend time with you. A tap on that button that says subscribe so you will not miss our show. You can also tap on the link for writingworkswonders.com. It'll take you directly to all the show notes and information that we shared today. Then you can sign up to receive the Zoom link so that you can be live with us when we are recording. You can also contact us at info at writingworkswonders.com. Our phone number is 347-467-0221. We also have a donate button. All donations go to technical expenses that Kathy and I incur in order to keep this podcast going. Kathy and I want you to feel encouraged and inspired and know the wonder in writing. And until next time, our friends, keep on writing.
Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.